Hello, I'm James Saunders. And I'm Jessica Powers. This week we are turning our attention to witness statements. We'll give our top tips on what to do and what not to do, as informed by some recent cases and our own experience. We'll also be looking at the draft CPR practice direction 57AC and its appendix, which will introduce new rules and requirements for witness statements for trial in the business and property courts. It's probably helpful to remind ourselves of the existing rules. We might be teaching you to suck eggs here, but familiarity can breed contempt and the requirements of CPR part 32 are often overlooked in my experience. Indeed. The most basic concept is set out in CPR rule 32.41, which says, and I quote, a witness statement is a written statement signed by a person which contains the evidence which that person would be allowed to give orally. A number of principles follow from that and they are expanded upon in the practice direction to part 32. To summarise them, the key principles being uh, that witness statements must, if practicable, be in the witness's own words, be drafted in the witness's own language and set out matters which are within the witness's own knowledge or are matters of information or belief, clearly indicating which is which. Whilst we're talking about paragraph 18 of the practice direction, it's probably worth reminding our listeners of the relatively recent introduction of the requirement to state in a witness statement the process by which it has been prepared. I've seen an awful lot of draft witness statements recently which haven't included that information. In general, I find that something along the following lines is sufficient. This witness statement has been prepared by my solicitors following telephone calls, emails and video conference due to the current restrictions imposed as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. The other relatively recent change, of course, is to the statement of truth, which now expressly refers to the possibility of contempt proceedings. I think this change was fairly well publicised and has been picked up across the board. As an aside, uh, the Proforma N244 application form has also recently changed to reflect the change in the wording of the statement of truth. Before we leave Practice Direction 32 behind and look at the practical application of those principles, I'll just highlight paragraph 19.2, which provides as follows. It is usually convenient for a witness statement to follow the chronological sequence of the events or matters dealt with, and each paragraph of a witness statement should, as far as possible, be confined to a distinct portion of the subject. Now let's take a look at the key principles, starting with a witness statement being in a witness's own words. The importance of that was succinctly referred to by Deputy Master Linwood in the case of Clitheroe and Bond. Statements in a witness's own words, even with minor technical inaccuracies, are, and I quote, preferable to statements that have been so engineered that the witness struggles when it's put to them in oral evidence. That's a short statement belying years and years of judicial comment about so-called over-lawyered witness statements. And there are so many issues which arise from that process of over-lawyering. In many cases, there may be an adverse impact on the court's assessment of the credibility of the witness because of it. So, for example, in a case last year, Rock Ferry Waterfront Trust and Penniston Holdings Limited, His Honour Judge Hodds QC found that a witness was not reliable because part of his witness statement duplicated, word for word, that of another witness and because a particular adjective was used which was not characteristic of the language habitually used by that particular witness. The witness is also being set up to fail, which is obviously detrimental to your case. In a bankruptcy case last year, Leopard and Robinson, Insolvency and Companies Court Judge Barber was faced with a witness who, when giving oral evidence, 
was, it was said, trying to persuade himself of matters consistent with the party line set out in his written evidence and to frame his answers accordingly. Unsurprisingly, that led to what was said to be a degree of inconsistency in his responses, and also to some responses which were flatly contradicted by the contemporaneous correspondence which was being put to him. No one wants to hear their witness deliver the dreaded response, I don't know, my lawyer drafted that to a cross-examination question. I, for one, have certainly heard that said in court, and it is a frightening statement. There is a lot to be said for interviewing a witness and then simply transposing that interview into a chronological witness statement of fact only. Leave the application of facts and law to skeleton arguments and to oral submissions. You might recall the stark remarks of Mr Justice Peter Smith in the director's disqualification proceedings which followed the collapse of Fairpack. He made comments in respect of the Secretary of State's affidavits, which observed that the deponents did not know what documents were in their own exhibits, and that they did not understand what was the purport of their evidence. Never was a stronger warning given that witness statements are not a place to rehearse arguments, set out a case, nor be a document created in the language of lawyers by lawyers. I think the problem is particularly prevalent where the witness is somebody like, for example, an insolvency practitioner or a caseworker in a government department, where they're giving evidence that is all based on reviewing documents. In those circumstances, it's far from uncommon for lawyers just to draft often voluminous witness statements which rehearse the contents of documents but present them as facts known to the witness. That was the exact issue in the Fairpack case. The nominated witnesses for the Secretary of State had only briefly perused lengthy statements drafted by their lawyers and had then just signed them off. So when they were presented with them in court, it all fell apart. The Chancery Guide specifically states in Chapter 19 that a witness statement shouldn't provide commentary on documents which are in the trial bundle, nor should it set out quotations from those documents. I think it's fair to say that that is possibly one of the most ignored pieces of guidance currently in existence. It should be borne in mind that parts of a witness statement that offend that rule can just be struck out as abusive. That happened back in 2013 in the case of J.D. Weatherspoon PLC and Harris. The judge commented that the witness wouldn't be permitted to give oral evidence which merely recited the relevant events by reference to the documents the witness had read, where the witness had no direct knowledge of them. So if you can't do it in oral evidence, you shouldn't be permitted to do it in a witness statement. The other potential adverse consequence of such evidence sounds in costs. In Flaxby Park Limited and Harrogate Borough Council, Mr Justice Holgate stated that evidence of this kind is objectionable because costs are incurred unnecessarily by the party preparing the witness statement and also, in any event, by the, by the opposing parties in having to consider whether to respond to it and because the court's time is also wasted. Mr Justice Holgate offered some comfort to parties who receive such evidence by stating that if a party's evidence offends the principle in Weatherspoon, which Jessica has just described, then it should not call for an answer in the form of an opposing witness statement, and no point should be taken about material going unchallenged. On a similar topic, uh, which also popped up in the Weatherspoon case, is the prevalence of opinion evidence in witness statements. Going back to the Chancery Guide in Chapter 19 thereof, that confirms that it is not the function of a witness statement to engage in matters of argument, expressions of opinion or submissions about the issues, nor to make observations about the evidence of other witnesses. As we all know, expert evidence requires permission from the court under Civil Procedure Rule 35.4. 
That requirement cannot be circumvented by presenting evidence of opinion in a witness statement of fact. Nor can it be circumvented by trying to sneak a report into an exhibit to a witness statement. Now, the applicant in Philip and Barclays Bank UK PLC, a case from this year, trying to do exactly that. It is worth noting, however, that the judge hearing the case did consider that report de bene esse. The converse of a lengthy witness statement containing extensive commentary and opinion is the witness statement that just says, I have read and agree with the witness statement of Mr Smith, or is simply a copy and paste of Mr Smith's own witness statement. That is a particular bugbear of mine and one I've seen happen on numerous occasions. It's always difficult to work out whose evidence is actually in whose statement. Yeah, I completely agree, James. It's a complete nightmare, particularly as counsel, because you then have the really difficult call of whether you cross-examine the witness who's just said, I have read and agree with the witness statement of Mr Smith, by putting the paragraphs of Mr Smith's witness statement to them, or whether you just make submissions to the court about the value or weight of their evidence, given that it's either a copy and a paste or a reference to another person's statement. There was a case in 2015, the case of Wake and Johnson, where counsel for the defendant actually drew up a table to demonstrate how four witnesses had used incredibly similar phraseology throughout their witness statement. Corroborative evidence is of course helpful, but just copying and pasting the same witness statement and attributing it to the different witnesses is likely going to result in more harm than good. Dealing with the final principle we set out at the start of this podcast, which is concerned with witness statements being in the witness's own language. Preparing witness statements for witnesses who are illiterate or who don't speak English as their first language is and always will be a very real challenge. However, it was confirmed by Mr Justice Calver in the case of Diamond and the Secretary of State for the Home Department that a failure to comply with the civil procedure rules in preparing witness statements is not just a technical breach, uh, but it affects the weight which the court will give to that evidence. So just to remind our listeners of the relevant rules where you're dealing with a witness who either cannot read or write or doesn't speak English as their first language, Starting with Practice Direction 22, paragraph 2.4 of that provides that the statement of truth which verifies a witness statement must be in the witness's own language. Paragraph 3a of that Practice Direction states that if a witness statement is to be signed by a person who is unable to read a witness statement because of a reason other than language, so for example they may be blind or they may be unable to read, then the witness statement must contain a certificate made by an authorised person. That will usually be a commissioner for oaths, but they need not be independent from the parties. The form of that particular certificate is contained within the appendix to Practice Direction 22, so it can just be copied into the witness statement. Moving to Practice Direction 32, paragraph 23.2 sets out the steps to be taken where a witness statement in its original form is in a foreign language. The witness statement must be translated and both the translation and the original witness statement must be filed at court. The translator must also sign the original witness statement and certify that the translation is accurate. Perhaps the final and some may say the most important point to make about content is ensuring its accuracy. James, I'm trying desperately not to recall a trial in my very early days where my client was accused of insurance fraud uh, on the basis that he'd staged a car accident and his witness statement merrily began with a statement that the car accident took place in July, and he remembered the day because it was snowing. 
Funnily enough, Jess, I had a trial last year where a witness claimed that he could remember a particular business meeting in February because it was particularly cold. War stories aside, there was a ruling of the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal last year which reconfirmed that filing and serving inaccurate witness statements was not only negligent, but also grounds for striking a solicitor off. On that cheery note, perhaps we should move to take a look at the new rules which are likely coming into force in the business and property courts in respect of witness statements for trial. Now on that point, back in March 2018, the ineffectiveness of factual witness statements in the commercial court was raised at a meeting of a users committee. That led to a working group being set up to consider ways in which the witness evidence process could be improved. The working group produced a report which outlined the perceived problems with the current practice and set out their recommendations. One of those recommendations was a change to the statement of truth, which, as we have already noted, happened last year. Other recommendations included permitting examination in chief in civil proceedings, the introduction of a requirement for a pre-trial statement of facts, and more cost sanctions and expressed judicial criticism of non-compliance. For today's purposes, the main recommendation was the production of an authoritative best practice guide. This has led to the draft practice direction 57AC uh, and the appendix to that practice direction. The new practice direction will apply to trial witness statements only, um, but there are also a number of exceptions. For example, it won't apply to certain applications under the Insolvency Act 1986 and the Companies Act 2006 nor will it apply to proceedings which fall within CPR Part 57, so for example probate claims, and it has no application to affidavits or witness statements that are prepared other than for trial. So the fundamental take-homes are, in summary, that trial witness statements must only state that which the witness claims personally to recollect about matters addressed in the statement, and trial witness statements must be endorsed with a certificate of compliance signed by the relevant legal representative, which confirms two things. The first is that the proper purpose and content of trial witness statements have been explained to the witness. And the second is that the witness statement complies with the civil procedure rules. Now, the practice direction doesn't create any new sanctions for non-compliance, but it does set out and reiterate that non-compliance might lead to, for example, the striking out of the witness statement, an order that the trial witness statement be redrafted, an adverse costs order, or a requirement that evidence in chief be given. The appendix to the practice direction is a statement of best practice. Interestingly, paragraph 1.3 of the appendix sets out the court's approach to human memory. There have been a number of scientific studies into the nature of human memory and the ability of the human mind to recall and edit memories. These studies have fed into judgments when comments are being made about the credibility of witnesses. The appendix expressly states that it is understood that human memory is fluid, malleable, and is vulnerable to influences which may result in unconscious alteration. Personally, I think what is going to be of most interest to practitioners and might possibly see the most fundamental changes to witness statements is at paragraphs 2.2 and 2.3 of the appendix. Paragraph 2.2 notes that often many matters of fact don't require witness evidence, either because they are common ground or because they can be proved from disclosed documents. It goes on to say that the fact that there might be an issue as to what a disclosed document means or shows is not in itself sufficient justification for witness evidence. Additionally, paragraph 3.4 of the appendix 
states that a trial witness statement should only refer to documents, if at all, where necessary. Paragraph 2.3 emphasises the point in the practice direction that witness statements should only contain personal testimony. That means matters which were experienced by a witness using their primary senses, or if it was a matter internal to their own mind. Paragraph 3.9 offers some guidance to legal practitioners as to how to prepare a trial witness statement, and it really echoes what James was saying earlier. Witness statements should be based upon a record or notes of an interview of the witness in an ideal world. And where a witness is being interviewed, paragraph 3.10 of the appendix states that there should be no leading questions put to the witness if they can be avoided and that the interview should be recorded as fully and accurately as possible with a record of that interview being maintained by the solicitors. It looks likely that these changes will come into force on the 1st of April this year. The practice direction will apply to witness statements for trial in new and existing proceedings, but only in respect of trial witness statements signed on or after a specified date. Watch this space then as to whether the concerns of the working group and indeed the judiciary, as expressed in the cases we have mentioned, are addressed in any meaningful way in the future by the changes being introduced. And with that, we've come to the end of this week's episode. Thank you, James, as ever, for your insight. I hope you, our listeners, found that useful. Thank you for listening. 